Tonight, we're going to begin a uh, season of reflection, uh, a season of reflection that's going to last Crosspoint Coast seven years, seven years, because over the next seven Good Fridays, we're going to consider the seven sayings of the Savior on the cross. That's a, a book written by A.W. Pink, where he considers the seven words of Jesus spoken from the cross. And tonight, we begin with his Words from Luke chapter 23, verse 34. Luke chapter 23, verse 34. The scene is set. Jesus is hanging between criminals on his right and on his left. And in verse 34, it says, And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Heavenly Father, we continue in need for you tonight. We pray that you would take this saying and you would work it into our hearts, that we would remember the prayer of our Lord, his first word on the cross, and that we would remember well, that we would see that the prayer of the righteous one was effective for our salvation, for our forgiveness. Lord, I pray that you would work in these moments even to bring that forgiveness, not only remembering of it, but also for anyone here who has not yet cried out to you in faith, that you would bring that gift as well. Thank you, Lord. We trust you in this time. We trust your word to work in us. We pray this in your name, in the name of Jesus. Amen. The scene is set. You know, I'm sure, much of the story, much of the, the evening that has led up to now this day of Good Friday, the upper room, we'll remember in communion in a few moments together, You'll, we'll remember together the disciples along with others in that upper room, they're hearing this command from our Lord to love one another. I love the way that uh, John, I believe, and as well as Luke put it, that uh, Jesus loved them. He loved them to the end, it says, when he gathered with them in that upper room. And yet there was a betrayer in that room. There were disciples who would scatter in that room. And outside of that room, there were soldiers that would come for our Savior in a garden, and they would drag him off for a series of politicizing and mock trial all over the course of that night leading on into the next day when we find the carpenter laying upon a piece of wood. And when we find him there, his first words are instructive to us. The first word we hear from our Lord on the cross is the word Father. Father. This is how the Lord taught us to pray, isn't it? We call out to the Father, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, right? That's how he begins his prayer. Father. This is the one who turned water into wine, right? He healed sick. He cast out demons. He calmed a storm. Disciples who had lived their lives as fishermen on these Lakes and these seas and these waters were scared to death 
and the Savior calmed the storm, and they were afraid. The Lord has worked mightily. The one who rebuked the Pharisees, he quieted the indignant, he baffled the wise, and he gave wisdom to all who would listen. In word and in deed, Jesus had proven himself that he's the Lord over all things. But if we pay attention, there is something else that has occupied the Lord during the course of his life that goes beyond merely word and deed. Something else that occupied him during the course of his ministry. When he was baptized, it says, he began to pray. When he was in the desert, he went there to fast and to pray. When the crowds pressed in upon him, he went far off to be with his father. And on the evening before With the weight of the impending cross beginning to press in upon him, what did our Lord do? Did he go about with word and deed? Did he perform great miracles? Did he have a great lesson to teach in that garden? No. We find that he cried out to the Father in prayer. Our Lord has been busy in word and deed. In his ministry of three years, Many words, many deeds have been seen by the people who followed him, but now there will be no more miracles by his hands. The very real flesh is pinned to a wooden beam. No more miracles. There would be no more going from town to town with good news. His feet are held in place by a crude Roman nail. There will be no more teaching of the crowds. His lungs have precious little air remaining. So what does the preacher, the teacher, the rabbi, the miracle worker do when all of his words, when all of his deeds are taken from him? What does Jesus do? He prays. And all of heaven listens. There's an incredible encouragement for the believers in the prayer of our Lord, that when everything else that he had done is finished, he has one thing yet to do. He cries out to the Father. I have a friend, uh, knew him about 15 years ago, and he had slowly begun to lose his sight, and he was distraught. His retina had detached, and the doctors were repeatedly powerless to restore him. He was a hard-working servant of the Lord who had, who had worked hard and provided for his wife. He'd provided for his children. He'd worked hard in his community. And he'd brought, his eyes had brought him the light that he needed for the work of his hands. And now as he sat in his home, he didn't notice that day as I was sitting in his home with him that the lights were so dim I was having a hard time seeing He was realizing that his hands were idle. How many times as a pastor I've sat in homes and hospitals and seen saints who look like they're sidelines from a life, sidelined from a life of faithful and fruitful labor. When the ministry of our Lord seemed to come to an end, when the disciples scattered because the Messiah appeared to be sidelined, what does our Lord do? He taught, he does what he taught 
them to do. He called out to the Father. Brothers and sisters, tonight we know that for all the miracles and all the words of our Savior, there is not a more potent work than the work that he did on the cross. His work of intercession has begun with those words. And it begins with one word, Father. What a privilege, church. What a privilege to pray. If your feet are no longer able to bring good news to the lost, may your prayer bring the lost to the Father. How many are in Christ's kingdom today because someone who could no longer use their feet or their hands brought them before the Father in prayer? What if we began that practice even today? One of the most shocking things Jesus said about prayer is actually found in Matthew chapter 5, verses 44 and 45. He says this, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. If you want to be like the Father, you'll love your enemies and you'll pray for those who persecute you. That's what we find our Savior doing. And what did he pray? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Father, forgive them. How how can that be? How does that work? Hasn't the Son already proclaimed forgiveness of sins many times? Why do we, in this scene on the cross, where the Son has gone about, proclaiming forgiveness of sin, declaring forgiveness of particular individual sin. We have in Matthew chapter 9, for what is, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. You see, Jesus is God. And God has the right to forgive sins. And that's what the Son does. He's taken on flesh to dwell among us and proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to declare forgiveness of sin. This is the role that we've seen him so masterfully fulfilling during the course of his ministry. But then we have this odd phrase, if you think about it for a moment. We have the one who declares forgiveness of sins saying, Praying, Father, forgive them. What we see is Jesus has taken another role for himself. Jesus, his perfection fulfilled in his role as prophet of God, has come to bring a message of peace and forgiveness of sin. But here we see him, not as the prophet of God, but in his priestly role. A.W. Pink writes, Who can forgive sins but God only? But you say, Christ was God, truly, but man also, the God-man. He was the Son of God that had become the Son of Man with the express purpose of offering himself as a sacrifice for sin. And when the Lord Jesus cried, Father, forgive them, he was on the cross, and there he might not exercise his divine prerogatives. Hence, it was that hanging there, As our representative. You hear that? 
What is Jesus on the cross? He's not operating in his priestly role, his prophet role anymore. He's offering, he's there as our representative, as our high priest. He's no longer in the place of authority where he might exercise his own divine prerogatives. Therefore, he takes the position of a supplicant before the Father, Pink writes. We may understand Jesus' prayer this way. Father, as I hang here on the cross, I hang here in the place of sinners. This is the role that I occupy now. You know my obedience, the perfect righteousness with which I have walked in your ways. Now the righteous dies in the place of the unrighteous. And because the debt is paid, because the utter terror of your righteous wrath falls on me as the spotless sacrifice, the lamb without blemish, Father, forgive them as I am contemned in their place. You see, the Son has taken the place of the sinner. It's from this priestly position that he prays for those he came to save. Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. Now there's another odd phrase. They know not what they do. It's so subtle how easily we misunderstand the scriptures. Sometimes we can fail to understand the scriptures due to something as small of an error as an emphasis, an accent, the cadence of our reading on the wrong word in a sentence. The sentence is not, for they know not what they do. The emphasis is they know not what they do. Jesus, Judas knew that he had betrayed a friend and a rabbi. He knew that. The priests and the Pharisees knew that they were handing over an innocent man to death. They knew very well. They had plotted his murder. And this is not the first time they would have loved to have seen it happen. Pilate and Roman authorities, they knew that it was not justice, but a simple political execution to appease their subjects. The crowds knew that Jesus was no common criminal or a seditious rebel. They knew. They knew. But they didn't understand the weight of their sin. They did not understand the weight and warning of Jesus' parable in the parable of the ten minus. When the citizens of the land hated their master, saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. The people had seen miracles. They'd heard his words. How many times did the crowds and rulers say, no one ever spoke to us like this man speaks. All who were present knew the violence and murder that they were perpetrating, but they did not understand that they were rejecting the creator, and the king. Even with the placard on the cross mocking him, it also bore testimony against all who put him there. Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. Friends, we find ourselves in the exact same place. The same words of Jesus could be spoken of us today. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Tonight, we've had a time of a prayer and confession. You can confess during that time that you're a sinner. You may know 
that you're broken. You may be quick to and ready to admit that you've fallen short of the glory of God, but you, do you truly know the weight of your sin? Friends, do we truly know the glory of God that we fall so very far short of? Do we know the reality of our rebellion? Do we know the gravity of rejecting Jesus as our king? It's not until we see the cross that we can truly understand our sin, that we can begin to understand the what of exactly what we have done. Up until now, it seemed as though sin were a light thing, perhaps as light as a man taking up his mat and walking. Like the sort of thing that Jesus could simply go about from town to town and declare, and there you are, and then you visit perhaps John the Baptist, and you're baptized, and there you go. Nice, simple, sweet repentance and forgiveness. We see Jesus so quickly declaring freedom and forgiveness. We see him dispersing crowds with their faces set on the violent condemnation of a sinner. It seems so easy. But when we see Jesus, the righteous one, crushed under the weight of our sin, now we're without excuse. Now we see what we have done. Now we understand that it's because of this that Jesus was not merely setting people free. He was taking their place. He wasn't just stepping around justice. The righteous one was preparing to fulfill justice for everyone that he declared forgiveness of. I wonder, wondered often, why does Jesus keep going to be off with the Father? Is it possible that every time that he declared forgiveness, every time that he healed sickness, which is God's curse on this world, that the world is broken and groaning under the weight of our sin, that he knew that when he worked that miracle, he would be the one to purchase the right to heal. He would be the one to purchase the right to forgive. And he went off to be with the Father. Brothers and sisters, we now understand what our sin has done. We are without excuse. We have seen what God requires for our sins to be forgiven. And this is exactly what we see Jesus' request of the Father working for us. This work, this cross, this death is so that ignorant and ignoble would be forgiven. I want to read for you this lengthy quotation from A.W. Pink again. What is the ground on which a holy God will forgive sins? And here it is. Important to remark that there is a vital difference between divine forgiveness and much of human forgiveness. As a general rule, human forgiveness is a matter of leniency, of laxity. We mean forgiveness is shown at the expense of justice and righteousness. In a human court of law, the judge has to choose between two alternatives. When the one in the dock has been proven guilty... The judge must either enforce the penalty of the law or he must disregard the requirements of the law. The one is justice and the other is mercy. 
The only possible way by which the judge can both enforce the requirements of the law and yet show mercy is to its offender is by a third party offering to suffer in his own person the penalty which the convicted one deserves. Thus it was in the divine counsels. God would not exercise mercy at the expense of justice. God, as the judge of all the earth, would not set aside the demands of the holy law, yet God would show mercy. How? The one making full satisfaction to his outraged law. Through his own son, taking the place of all those who believe on him and bearing their sins in his own body on the tree, God could be just and yet merciful. Merciful and yet just. Thus it is that grace reigns through righteousness. We do not know. Even today, we fail to truly understand. But the Lord knows. He knew. Father, forgive them. He knew exactly What the request was, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. But he knew. And the Lord prays it would be so. And it is on the cross, as Psalm 85 says, steadfast love and faithfulness meet, righteousness and peace kiss each other. We're saying how deep the Father's love for us. But his love is not just vast beyond all measure. His love is also profound, surpassing all knowledge. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer. But this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. 